Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to do the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5, which is the story of the Gadarene demoniac. Now, this passage has two parallel passages in the other two synoptic gospels in Matthew and Luke. There's a lot of details that one passage has that the other one doesn't, and I made a list of them, so I'm going to start out by giving you the differences, and that will also kind of introduce us to the general overall situation that that happened over there. If you recall, Jesus had left in chapter 4. He had huge crowds right around Capernaum on the sea. He had given about eight parables, and then he got in the boat to escape all that commotion to go over to uh, outside of Galilee to the area of the Gadarenes. Now, the Gadarene area, the Gerasene area, area was mostly Gentile and was a good way away from Capernaum. is on the other side of the lake, and he probably did that to get away from all the, the noise, the clamor, and the uproar. So we'll start reading. Well, before I start reading in Mark 5, verse 1, let me go through all the differences in the, in the synoptic gospels. First of all, Matthew calls it the area of the Gadarenes. The other two gospels, Luke and Mark, say it's the Gerasenes. I'm going to explain that in a minute, how we can reconcile that. Matthew has two demon-possessed demoniacs meet Jesus when he gets across the lake, southeast of the Sea of Galilee, but Mark and Luke only have one demon-possessed man. Matthew and Luke say that no one could bind the demoniac with chains. Mark just leaves that out. Matthew has the demoniac coming out of the tombs. Mark and Luke have him living in the tombs. Luke has the demoniac not wearing any clothes. The other two don't mention the fact that he's not wearing clothes. Mark is the only account that has the demoniac cutting himself with stones. Mark has the demoniac living in the mountains. Matthew doesn't mention this, and Luke has him living in the deserts. I guess I should try to reconcile these as I go through, because I'm probably going to forget as I go through. So the two demon-possessed people, as opposed to one, I'll mention that as I go through, but the other details are just merely incidents that one gospel writer mentions and the other one doesn't. For example, coming out of the tombs, living in the tombs, he's probably living in the tombs, and he would come out of the tomb sometime and go back to his home in the tombs. Luke mentions no clothes. The other two just don't mention it, that the demoniac had no clothes. Mark mentions that the demoniac was cutting himself with stones. The other one doesn't mention it. Mark has the demoniac in the mountains. Luke has him in the desert or the wilderness. And Matthew doesn't mention where he was. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Mountains themselves are very are as much of a wilderness area. You can have flat areas in the wilderness. You can have mountainous areas or hilly areas in the desert. Mark says that the demoniac worshipped Jesus. Luke says he fell down, which is the same thing as worshipping Jesus, and Matthew leaves it out. Mark is the only gospel that says, why do you torment us before the time? The other ones just say, why do you torment us? Luke doesn't mention the demon's name of legion. Matthew and Mark do. Mark says the demons asked Jesus, don't send us out of the country, out of the region, Luke said, don't send us into the abyss. In Luke, the demons said, please, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. Well, that's easy to reconcile. You can just say the demons ask both. Don't send us into the abyss. Jesus says, I'm not going to send you into the abyss. Then then they say, well, don't send us out of this region any. We've got lots of people we can possess over here. And Jesus says, no, I am going to, okay, I'll keep you in the region, but I'm going to send you into some pigs. That's easy to reconcile. Mark gives us the detail. There were 2,000 pigs that the demons were cast into. The other two don't mention that. Mark and Luke 
say that the swine herders, after the demons were cast out, went out and told the city and the country. Matthew says the city only. That's not hard to reconcile. Matthew just mentions one fact and doesn't mention the other. Mark says the demoniac was sitting in his right mind after the demons were cast out and calm. The other two don't mention that. Matthew says that Jesus left in a boat. Excuse me, Matthew omits that Jesus left in a boat after the possession of the demoniac. The other two Gospels state that Jesus left the Gerasene area in a boat. Matthew admits that the demoniac wanted to follow Jesus after Jesus cast the demons out of him, but the other two say that the demoniac wanted to follow Jesus. Luke says that the demoniac went around publishing the good news of his deliverance in the whole city where Mark says it was in Decapolis. Luke says nothing. That's easy to reconcile. He did both. Went around and told it in the whole city. And again, we don't, as I'm going to show you here, we don't really know what the city was and what the region was. The scholars disagree on all that, but whatever. Let's say the city is Gadara. He published that. Then he went to the, all the other cities in Decapolis. Decapolis is 10 Gentile cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he went around to all of Decapolis. So these are minor details mostly, but there's a lot of details because there's a, all three synopsis give a long account of the story. Well, now let's start with March 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea to the region of the Gerasenes. As I said, the other two Gospels say Gadarenes. Well, let's, let me give, I'm going to give you five possible ways to reconcile that difference. Excuse me, four possible ways to reconcile the difference. First of all, the NIV note says that some manuscripts say Gadarenes, other manuscripts say Gergesenes, so it could be just a manuscript variation. Second possibility, Gadara was a city that was adjacent to or within the country of the Gergesenes. So then you get Gadara is the city, the Gergesenes are the region. So one gospel writer refers to the city, one refers to the region. That happens all the time. That's easy. That would be an easy way to reconcile it. That's assuming Gadara was the city. Now, the opposite of that is you assume that Gadara was the region, which started about six miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee, and further southeast of that was the capital city of Gerasa. And so one gospel writer appeal, uh, uh, refers to the region. Mark here refers to the region of the Gerasenes, and the capital city was Gadara, and the other two gospels refer to Gadara. And interestingly enough here, Robertson points out that there was a village named Kersa or Garasa which had been found on the lake shore. Now, Robertson said if this village was included, a very natural supposition, in the district belonging to the city of Gadara, in other words, we assume that Gadara is a district, not a city, but a district, and Garasa was a village within the district of Gadara, and that village was some mile southeastern, then the locality could be described as either in the country of the Gadarenes or the country of the Gerasenes, either way. So Gersa doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be the capital city. It can just be a village located in the region. So basically, that's how you reconcile it. It's not hard. Just remember, either Gadara is the city uh, in, the, in the region of the Gerasenes, or Gerasa is a city in the region of the Gadarenes, and one gospel writer refers to one, and one refers to the other. Or it just could be a textual variant, and the textual variant might have come because people were trying to resolve the differences between the gospel writers, didn't realize the geography back then. Let's move on to Mark chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. As soon as he, Jesus, got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains. Now, was this meeting accidental or did Satan plan it? I don't think Satan planned it. Gil says that not even Satan knew that the meeting would occur and I think that's true because 
Otherwise, he would have kept the demoniacs out of Jesus' path because the results was very bad for Satan. He was the bad guy, and the bad guys have got zero, and the good guy, Jesus, has, has scored one. I mean, I mean so so I, this was just probably one of those things. Jesus went, there's demons everywhere in, in, in that time, and Jesus went there and took advantage of what he saw, healed the man. Why was the man living in tombs? Well, it either could be in Jewish tombs or Gentile tombs because that area of Gadara was mostly Gentile. Now, maybe close to the Sea of Galilee, it might have, could have had some Jews there too. So people don't know exactly where the, was the, were the tombs Gentile or were they Jewish. Now, according to Adam Clark, cupolas were generally built over the tombs of Jews, and this is where the man was living. However, the NIV Study Bible says it was not unusual for some caves to provide burial for dead and shelter for the living. So, and I think that's what it is. Caves over there, the demoniacs were living in caves. And often the very poor did live in such caves as free housing. So that's probably what, and a demoniac like that is going to be poor. Obviously, he can't get a job. So he, he's living in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, even with chains. Next question is, why would the man have chains on him? Well, probably because the villagers were trying to protect themselves. Because if the man was crazy as he sounded, as we read this story, they were probably scared the man would leave the tombs and come into the city and do somebody some harm. So they had chained him up. Before we go on, we need to provide a reconciliation for this fact. Mark only mentions one demoniac, one man with an unclean spirit, whereas the other two God, excuse me, Matthew... Luke only mentions one, too, but Matthew mentions two. The reconciliation of that is fairly easy. Mark and Luke only mention the fiercest one, the fiercest demoniac who had the legion of demons. The other one was probably just tagging along. Casting the demon out of him was probably anticlimactic compared to casting the legion of demons out of the spokesperson. He was the principal one who spoke to Jesus and carried on all the commotion and that's why Mark and Luke only mention him. I mean, just think about all the people that demon, Jesus cast demons out. Probably they didn't even feel like it was worth mentioning the fact that he cast demons out of another guy. It was such a commonplace occurrence. But not this casting of a legion of demons out. That was not a commonplace occurrence. So I think that reconciles the gospel accounts on that score. So now we go to Mark chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had snapped off the chains and smashed the shackles, no one was strong enough to subdue him. And always, night and day, he was crying out among the tombs and in the mountains and cutting himself with stones. Now, I mentioned the villagers probably chained the man for their own protection, but in doing so, they added to his humili humiliation. He, he was like a freak in a circus. The fact that he was cutting his, himself with stones shows that the devil wants to kill, steal, and destroy. People with psychological problems cutting themselves, that's, that's sort of a common psychological malady because when you get, not that those people are necessarily demon-possessed, but that's the sort of thing that people do when they want to just destroy themselves. They cut themselves with stones. Or they cut themselves, and of course, he didn't have knives. He had to use stones uh, in the caves where he lived. The NIV Study Bible says this cutting shows that he wanted to destroy the divine likeness in which the man was created. Now, the fact that he snapped the chain shows how demons can give people supernatural strength. I've got personal experience of this. I remember a high school uh, girl in a home for ne neglected and orphaned and abused girls I was working in. And my wife and I and another house parent and his wife were there. 
and the other couple had left, and all of a sudden we had this horrible session where a bunch of people started, a bunch of the girls in the home started acting demon-possessed, and one of them in particular was foaming at the mouth. The demon was using her hands to grab her neck and choke her so much that I thought she was going to choke, that the demon was going to choke her to death, and she was throwing fire pots and talking like that, talking that, and, you know, it was just pretty bad. And she and, she, and there were knives in the in the kitchen where she was, and I was scared to death she was going to get a knife knife and kill somebody. In fact, I was scared scared out of my mind actually. The other house parent came back unexpectedly in in the midst of all the chaos, and the demoniac girl, she had her back turned to the other house parent. His name was Doug. He went charging down the hallway and tackled her, and she lands on her back. And I immediately. Uh, put both of my hands on one arm to hold her down, and he put her, put his hands on the other arm to hold the other arm down, and by golly, that girl started lifting both of us up in the air. I mean, not up in the air. I'm sorry, lifted her arms up in the air, and we couldn't hold her arm down. So immediately I had to start saying, in the name of Jesus, put the arm down, because the demon had given the girl supernatural strength. This is a common thing with demon possessions. If you read about that kind of stuff, I thought I'd tell you my war story, and... uh and, and confirm this, yeah, the demons have supernatural strength, and they cause demoniacs to have supernatural strength. Now, this man was crying out among the tombs, wailing, moaning, I assume that's what that means. And it's easy to forget how sad and pitiful this man's situation was. We often focus on the demons and all that kind of stuff, but what about this man? His life was ruined. It may have been the demons crying out and not him, but it could have been him crying out because his life was over. His life was ruined. That's why this is such a great story. Matthew 5, verses 6 through 8. When he saw Jesus from a distance, this is the demoniac with a legion of demons, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So, well... Let's look at this demon here. First thing, he sees Jesus coming from a long way off from a distance. Well, that's the uh, demoniac saw Jesus from a distance. And then the demoniac ran and knelt down before him. Of course, the demoniac's being impelled to do what he's doing because of the demon in him. Knelt down before him. He acknowledged, this demon acknowledged that Jesus was Lord because he's kneeling down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus? Now, that's a, a idiom that means... Mind your own business, Jesus. You're over there, and some people speculated. I forgot which of my commentators speculates this, that the demon is saying, look, you've got all those Jewish people over there that you can be king of in Israel. I'm over here with the Gentiles. Leave me alone. Let me be, let me possess all the Gentiles I want. I'll leave the Jews alone. That's a good speculation. I don't know. This guy was a Gentile most probably because he used the phrase son of the most high God. This was a title commonly used by Gentiles according to my NIV study Bible, which indicates the man may not have been a Jew, but rather a Gentile. I think he was. Now notice that the demoniac is a he here, and he cried out with a loud voice. It's actually a legion of demons in there. There was one, the demon called, the demon called legion was a spokesperson. I wouldn't say a spokesperson, a spokesdemon for all the other demons. And he is quite perturbed. I beg you before God, don't torment me. Now, other translations have it. For example, the NIV, swear to God that you won't torture me. Instead of I beg you before God, swear to God that you won't torture me. The NIV study Bible says the demon used the strangest 
oath he knew, which is strangely ironic, because he's swearing by God the Father. Jesus, please swear by God the Father, don't throw me out. The demon was genuinely frightened because he knew he was about to be punished. James 2.19 says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. The demons know who they're dealing with. And it's interesting, somebody made a point one time, why do the demons even fight? They know they're going to get eventually bound and cast into, into hell. So what's the point? Well, that assumes they do know that. I'm not sure how you prove that the demons know what their final end is. But if they do know what their final end is, it's just in their nature to rebel. They can't help it. They're so evil. Their their essence is so corrupt. They can't do anything but instinctively fight against God. Just like fallen human beings instinctively turn away from God and sin against him in every way they can think of. Their evil is like poison under some, under their tongue, I think it says in the book of Romans. Now let's take care of a detail that's in Matthew chapter 8 verse 29 which is not mentioned in Mark or the other or Luke the demon says to Jesus you come here to torment us before the time before the time what's before the time the NIV has before the appointed time well now there's several options well there's a couple of options what that could mean and most people take it to mean the time of judgment and just re, just a second ago I said that how do we know the demons know that they're going to be judged well this is how you'd prove it right here in Matthew 8:29 the demon is saying, are you tormenting us before the time? And then you have the problem is, well, why do they even bother to fight if they know when the time of judgment, that they know that there's a time of judgment out there? And I just said it's because that's their nature too. They can't help it. They're going to rebel against God. God's not going to change their nature. And so they're going to rebel all the way to the end. So that's not really a problem. Now, the time of their judgment is when they would be thrown into the abyss. Now, Luke chapter 8 verse 31 says they begged him not to banish them to the abyss but uh, Matthew mentions the abyss also if I remember correctly but Mark here says are you going to throw it please don't cast us out of the region well the way I would reconcile that is the demons didn't of course didn't want to go into the abyss they also didn't want to go in out of Gadara because there were a bunch of pagan Gentiles over there plenty of people they could possess and so they wanted to hang around. Of course, Jesus didn't honor, well, he, I guess he did honor the request not to be thrown out of the region and the abyss, too. He, he, did, he went along with what the demon said, and he cast them into pigs. Now, there could be another interpretation of this verse, that before the time means, before the time the demons had proposed to themselves to remain in the demoniacs, according to John Gill. In other words, hey, our lease ain't up yet. Don't kick us out. I don't think that's the answer. I think it's before the appointed time of judgment. I think the demons know what's, what's facing them, and they're going to fight to the end. Now, I read what the demons said. What do you have to do with me, Jesus? But that's not how they talk. This is how they talk. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. That's how they talk. I say that because I've heard them. Nastiest things... And, you know, these people say, well, you know, one day the demons are going to be saved. You know, ultimate reconciliation. That is the biggest bunch. Of, I don't want to be in hell with a demon. I mean, in heaven with a demon. Well, I guess the demon would be saved. But Jesus never says that he's going to save any demon. He says he's going to cast them into the abyss, as the parallel passages say here. Notice these demons are this d demon, particularly nasty, of course. One of them was named Legion because he was in charge of a whole lot more demons. They were shouting they weren't just talking like I just said. They were shouting at Jesus. They were scared out of their gourds. 
And they said, what do we have to do with Jesus? Like I said, it could be interpreted, uh, mind your own business. But the answer to that is, if you take it literally, what do we have to do with Jesus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Another way of saying it is saying it instead of, mind your own business, Jesus, or you take Galilee and we'll take Gadara. Another way of saying that is, what do we have in common? Well, the answer to that is that demons and Jesus have nothing in common. Nothing at all. Now, in Matthew 8, verse 29, the demons say, Have you come here to torment us before the time? And that, that could just, the here could just be a, a, just a incidental word that means nothing. But John Gill says the word may have significance because here was in Gadara, which was a Gentile territory. So the demons might be saying, Look, you've already started cleaning the demons out of the Jewish territory, and now you're cleansing us out of the Gentile territory. So what are you doing that for? Stick with the Jews. Uh, one thing concerning pronouns, the parallel pa the passage in Mark here is, is he. I think I mentioned this. The he, that stands for the, the demon, the chief demon. But in Matthew, it's they. They were speaking because there's one demon speaking for all the rest. That doesn't, that's easy to reconcile. We go now to verse 9 in Mark 5. What is your name? He asked him. Jesus asked the demon. My name is Legion, he, the demon, answered him, Jesus, because we are many. Now the question that arises here is why was Jesus asking the demon's name? The general rule of thumb when you're casting out demons is you don't ask the demon's name. You tell them to shut up. Don't talk. Cast them out. Well, here's some options. First of all, in the ancient world, to name someone is to have control over him. So maybe Jesus was saying, come on, tell me your name. I got you now. Legion. Or it could be, second option, Jesus was ignorant of the demon's name and wanted to know. Well, I don't believe that's true. Third option, Jesus wanted to know how many unclean spirits were in the man. I don't think that was true either. The third option is, is Jesus knew it was more than one demon in the man. He wanted this to be known to everyone. That's John Gill's answer, and I think he's right. He wanted to show how great Jesus' power was to deliver, to deliver, so he got the demon to state. I'm, a, I'm in charge of a whole bunch of demons. J Jameson Fawcett and Brown agrees with Gill on that point. Gill goes on to say that by getting the demon to name his name, it showed what a pitiful condition the man was in, which, of course, better showed the mercy of Jesus when Jesus healed the man by, through the exorcism. Moving on to Mark chapter 5, verse 10, and he, that's the legion demon, he kept begging him, begging Jesus, not to send them out of the region, legion and all the other demons that he represented. And of course, the other gospels have abyss. Don't send me out of the abyss. I've already mentioned this. Don't go out of the region because there's a lot of pagan, idolatrous Gentiles living there, according to Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, so the demons could easily find other people to demonize. Of course, demons can't just willy-nilly walk into people. you got to do something to open yourself up to them, and idol worship is a good way to do it. Moving on to Mark chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Now a large herd of pigs was there, feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so we may enter them. And he gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. First question, why would Jesus, why would Jesus listen to the request of demons? Well, this is my speculation here. I didn't read this in any commentary, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But demons like to be embodied. They like to possess something. <laughs> By putting them into pigs, that is the ultimate degradation to be in a pig instead of a human being. And as a result, I don't know if Je I, I assume Jesus knew that what the pigs were going to do. 
The result was the pigs all died, and so the demons are now bodiless. They don't have a body to inhabit, and so they ended up in pretty bad shape. But then the next question arises, well, wait a minute, Jesus just ruined somebody's pigs. All right, now, first of all, as we deal with this interesting question, I like this question. I'm an ex-lawyer. I have a high view of property rights. It's always kind of bothered me that Jesus would destroy 2,000 pigs that didn't belong to him. How do you justify that? Well, after a lot of cogitation and reading on the subject, I found Adam Clark. He said that these pigs were probably Jewish property kept and used in express violation of the law of God. In other words, there were some Jews over there herding pigs to sell to the Gentiles so they could have some pork chops. And so, therefore, the destruction was just. And that might have been why Jesus sent the demons into the pigs, to destroy the pigs, because he knew that the Jews were violating the law. That's the only way I can reconcile that. I think it's pretty clever. I don't know if it's tr if, it, if that's the correct way to reconcile it, but I think it sounds pretty good. Mark chapter f Mark adds this detail about the 2,000, by the way. And by the way, uh, 2,000 pigs, that's a lot. But there weren't 2,000 demons in the man, I don't think. I can't imagine a person having 2,000 demons. What happened is the legion and all the other demons that are in the man rushed out into some of the pigs. Those pigs go crazy and run toward the cliff. And the cliffs, by the way, on the Sea of Galilee, they're very steep. And they, I mean, even today, they're steep. And Mark mentions the detail that there was a steep bank. The 2,000 rushed down the steep bank, but it was because they were led by the demon-possessed pigs, and all the other pigs followed after the demon-possessed pigs over the cliff. Mark chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town, in the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been, been demon-possessed by the legion sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. The eyewitnesses described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. Well, first of all, why would they beg Jesus to leave? You would think they'd be happy that the demoniac was cured. They didn't have to chain him up anymore to keep him from running into the town and scaring the blazes out of them. No, that might, they might have been happy about that, but they weren't happy about losing 2,000 pigs. And what happened once could happen again. This seemed to be a major concern about these pigs, according to the NIV Study Bible, and I think they're right. It was a dramatic and a big financial loss. I mentioned why Jesus might have chosen to send the demons into the pigs, because it was degrading and so forth, and maybe he wanted to destroy some illicit pig business being carried on by the Jews. But the next question is, is why would the demoniacs ask to be put into the pigs? Well, I guess they were in trouble, and they, wa they wanted to be embodied. I, I guess they were smart enough to know that Jesus wasn't going to send them into other human beings. There's, so they said, well, given the choice of being disembodied or being put into pigs, we'll take being, being put into pigs. At least we'll have some kind of body. And demons like not only like to be embodied, they like to harm things. And if they couldn't harm the two demoniacs by being cast out of them, they could at least harm the pigs. That's John Gill's solution. Another idea is that demons are filthy and pigs are filthy, so they're fit for one another. <laughs> so the demons didn't actually didn't see anything wrong with being in the demon in in the pigs. Could be the demons hated the Gadarenes so much they wanted to destroy their property. And when their property was destroyed, then they would turn against Christ, if the demons were thinking that far ahead. But I honestly don't think they were, because that would require a lot of cogitation. And, and all I can see in this passage is they're screaming and yelling at Jesus. I don't, think, I don't know if they're thinking that far ahead. 
But as it turns out, that's exactly what happened. The Gadarenes did turn against Christ when he destroyed those pigs. But Jesus didn't seem to worry about that too much. You know, he, he wasn't worried either when he turned over the money changers' tables and ran their sacrificial animals out of the temple and, and turned the money changers' tables over. He didn't worry about who was going to be mad about that. He didn't worry about any property that might have been lost in that scene. He was trying to make a point. I really do think those were Jews raising some contraband pigs. Here's another possible reason Jesus wanted to send those demons into the pigs. Because it made a much bigger impression on the onlookers to see the pigs drown. That would have been a quite a remarkable sight. And he wanted to demonstrate his power over demons, and that was a great way to do it. Now in Mark 5, verses 14 through 17, what I just read, Mark says that the men were dressed. Remember, Luke says they were naked living in the tombs because the demons kept ripping their clothes off, I suppose. But now they're dressed and in their right mind. And the local townspeople, when they saw that, they were afraid. Instead of being happy for the poor man, they were afraid and said, Please get out of here, Jesus. I'm not too impressed with the Gadarenes. Mark 5, verse 18, As he was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. He wanted to follow Jesus, and that's a natural emotion after what had happened. At least the healed man was the one Gadarene who showed gratitude, if even if the other didn't. Mark 5, verses 19 through 20. But he would not let him. Instead, he told him, Go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he, he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. The Decapolis was that city of ten, that league of ten Gentile cities on the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. Why did Jesus not let the man follow him? Probably because he had trained his disciples. Just because the man was happy didn't, doesn't mean he was qualified to be an apostle. And besides, what a great witness he was for the people in Decapolis. Now Jesus didn't tell him to be quiet like he often did at Capernaum when the Pharisees and Sadducees were there trying to trip him up and trying to get him in trouble. In the capitalists, they weren't any Jews. They weren't any Pharisees and Sadducees. And so this man could go out and proclaim the gospel all he wanted, which is good because Jesus eventually, you know, is going to get around to teaching Gentiles. And recall, he, he, in that passage earlier in Mark, he went out and, and it might have been in Matthew, I don't remember, but he was teaching in Tyre and Sidon, Syrophoenicia, in Edomia, south of Jerusalem, and in this area here, the Decapolis, outside of Israel proper. So Jesus, even from the very beginning, he had Gentiles on his mind, even though he started out first with the lost, with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I said ten cities east of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. Actually, there was one, Bethshan. I've been to Bethshan. Scythopolis was the Roman name. That's a good place to go to. It's got a great Roman architectural, uh, archaeological site there. The other nine were in Gentile territory on the other side of the river. It was a league of free cities. It was characterized by high Greek culture. These cities stretched from a point northeast of the Sea of Galilee, southward to modern Amman, or as the Romans called it, Philadelphia. I could tell you the name of the ten cities, but it's not its not worth it. Now, except for one. One city was Pella. Now, Pella is a very famous city when you study Preterist eschatology because that is where, that is the city where the Christians fled from the siege of Jerusalem when Cestus, the Roman general, withdrew from his siege of the city 
And that was at the point where Jesus had predicted when you see the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem flee and the Christians fled. Well, that's where they fled. They fled to Pella, one of the cities of the Decapolis. Damascus is uh, mentioned too. That's pretty well known. Army is still there. I assume it's still there. Syrians are blowing each other to bits in their civil war. I mentioned that Jesus sent that demoniac back to witness in Decapolis. There's one other reason why he could have done that. A cured demoniac would not be needed so much as a witness because they were gobs of witnesses in Galilee after the ministry he had done at Capernaum in Galilee. So one more witness might not have meant so much. But over here in Gadara, he's the only one, so he'd have much more impact. So we'll stop it here. Take it up next time, starting with verse 21 and Mark 5. Hope you enjoyed this audio.